Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part three of my conversation with four different members of the Digital Ethics Task Force at Able, the Association for Authentic, Experiential, and Evidence-Based Learning. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Education Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I think Peter should jump in here, given his comment before we even started recording about his position. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I joke that, I mean, my full position is Educational Analyst 3, and the most meaningful part of that title is the 3, because that determines how much I get paid. Uh, but... but uh, I mean, the meaningful, there's a lot of things that are meaningful about my role, but the position is, you know, a made up thing. But I do, you know, I, I do think that there is an element to, to these principles that, that I think we all believe expands beyond ePortfolio, um, you know, that they, they can live and work everywhere. And one of the things I like about our visibility of labor principle is that it kind of begins with making, making, well, making labor visible, that it's, it's helping people recognize this because I, I think we're as professionals in higher ed, we're getting better at thinking about how us and people who are in our, our particular positions, whatever they may be, are under a particular amount of strain. Uh, There's a level of burnout because people and people like me are, um, are experiencing this burnout, but we're not great at thinking about coalition building and thinking about how my burnout is related to your burnout, even though you and I have two very different roles. And so, you know, I'm on staff, not faculty at my institution. And so you'll oftentimes hear faculty talk about faculty burnout. And the solution is often from the staff perspective is often like put it all off on staff. And so Mm -hmm. then staff have a very different conversation about how it's a faculty privilege sort of issue. And the reality is much bigger than that, you know, in that, you know, capitalism. So like, so there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's broader systemic problems that, that we're not, um, we, we tend to not really address because the whole, the whole of, of labor in higher ed is just not made visible. Well, and I also think Peter, that's so important, but I also think there's this element of digital creep. Right. For a long Mm -hmm. time, like the digital was innovative and it was fun and it was cool. So like people didn't mind doing the extra stuff around the digital because you were like edgy and hip and like what you were doing was like, you know, out there and and it was really fun. And then the digital creep like kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And now we're all doing it. And now like maybe it isn't fun and it doesn't feel innovative. And instead it's like, wait, what, what world did we just create? Um, So I think that, you know, that question of really making labor visible is so important. Who is doing this work? How are they being supported? What does that support look like? Do people have what they need to do their jobs? Um, You know, and writ broadly, right? I'm not just talking about like, do you have a computer? But do you have time, space, um, you know, energy, creativity um, to do the work that you need to do? And I think it's this principle really speaks to that in ways that are very interesting. And I think on a lot of our campuses, we don't have those conversations. Yeah, and I'll say, like, uh, this is the principle that I could get really wild-haired and crazy hands about because I'm, I'm really invested in this one. And I think 
you know, if you go look at our visibility of labor one, it's not just us talking about staff or faculty. We also talk about the labor that students are asked to engage with because, you know, to a point someone made earlier where it's like, go do an e-portfolio. See you later. Um, it's like, what work did you just ask them to engage with? Who is helping them? Where are they going to get that? How much time? And then flip that conversation and think about staff, faculty, administrators, grant, you know, evaluators, et cetera. All those people are doing work that uh, oftentimes does not lead to things like tenure and promotion or accolades or promotions, you know. Um, and during the pandemic, I can certainly speak to our ePortfolio team. We have an ePortfolio studio with tutors very similar to our writing center. Uh, and we were just asked because there was no other student facing team that did digital media support. Um, Hey, if students have questions about, you know, any technology the faculty throw at them during the pandemic, you guys got it, right? And all four of our students just start sweating profusely because, you know, faculty were grabbing just, and I mean, and this is no slight, and they're grabbing any tool that would allow them to do engagement. So you're getting Blackboard cahoots, um, pair flow, just all kinds of things that we've never seen before because they're not portfolio related, but we're the ones who do digital literacy. So you're up to up to deck and then you're just kind of expected to keep doing that. And those students, I will tell you, are not paid extravagantly. <laughs> and we're training them and onboarding them constantly because students do what students should. They graduate. Uh, and they're also asked to go do workshops in classes where faculty are pushing them to do more and more of the work that faculty are maybe afraid to do, where it's like learning the technology or describing in a, a well-designed assignment, you know, or a criteria for evaluation. And again, it's just because everyone's being pulled in a thousand directions due to that digital creep. So I think the visibility of labor also, uh, and I'm going to be a really annoying English scholar and use the word zeitgeist here, but I think we see it in the, in the cultural movements writ large with unions growing, um, you know, all of that pressure, the sense that the work has expanded, the acknowledgement and um, time and um, space for that work has not. And, and part of it is the technology makes it easy to do things rapidly uh, and makes it easy to do it invisibly. So maybe your 300 emails a day just are never noticed. But you, if you sit down and count how much time that might have been, uh, it's quite a lot. And so again, uh, the visibility of labor principles, not just us kind of complaining that work is hard, but it's trying to give people strategies for finding it and advocating for your work, um, advocating for more resources, or even just as I, I love Peter's point about coalition building. And, and I think we'll talk about the mapping survey maybe at the end as, as part of that. But I want to let Sarah write in here because I know she just <laughs> she's also my wild haired colleague on labor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I the visibility of labor principle, like as for Megan, is very dear to my heart. Um, and it came in the second round. It was not one of our first principles. And it, to me, it, it actually grew out of that interest in support and practice. And like that those things were requiring what I felt like were a lot of invisible labor in my job. And then I was also requiring that of others. And so my role at the time was I had one course release. I was a full-time non-tenure track faculty at that member at that point in time. And I had one course release to essentially teach everyone else in the rhetoric and composition program how to use the new uh, portfolio platform that we were using. Um, there was a lot of resistance. That was pre-pandemic. There was a lot of resistance, largely because um, anytime you try to mandate that 50 plus faculty all do the same thing, you're going to get a lot of resistance. But there was also a lot of disparity in who was being forced to do what. The non-tenure track faculty were being mandated. The tenure track faculty were able to choose whether or not they wanted to 
and I was I was encountering my own emotional labor and working with people who really did not want to do what they were being asked to do. And I had been asked to do what I was doing because like Liz was saying, right? Like I was, I always want to learn like a new thing. Like, I think that's really fun and I want to play with it and see what I can do and um, see what I can make it do that it's not supposed to do. I always think like that's a really fun exercise for whatever, I don't know, that's the way my brain works. But um I, I was not able to pass on that enthusiasm to a lot of people. And I was going into their classrooms and seeing how their resistance, that, that sort of attitudinal moment, right, of like their resistance is being passed on to students. Those things were making my work a lot harder. Um, so I got really interested in like emotional labor and care work and, and, and those ideas around technology more generally to go back to Liz's point and bring it to, to digital ethics um, in the sense that I do feel like as a culture, maybe as a world, really, we are not being attentive enough to the invisible work that we are all doing um, when we use technology um, in, in all kinds of ways, right? And that is everything from, um, you know, when you when you buy a car and it has a backup camera in it and how different that is from learning how to back up with the mirrors and, your, and like w- how that is sort of making you work differently and think differently too. I'm using these new tools in my education and how how is that supporting my learning and also how is that taking time and energy that I'm not giving credit to um, or or we are not giving credit to. So I don't, again, it's kind of like Liz was talking with access. I have no answers to these questions, but I, I'm really glad that we've started the conversation. I think the mapping survey um, that I'll let Megan talk about in a minute is going to be a great way to start at least for the ePortfolio community, gathering a sense of how people who are doing this work feel about it. I just wanted to say, I mean, the other thing that I think is really interesting. So when we talk about a principle like visibility of labor, the other thing that I think becomes immediately clear is how these principles are interwoven, Mm -hmm. right? So we talk about visibility of labor, but then that also can lead to questions around what is your institution privileging and how is it supporting that work? So for instance, if an institution is spending a lot of time talking about DEI or DEIBC work, or they're spending time talking about accessibility, how does that then play out in the digital space, right? What tools do students, faculty, and staff have in order to make portfolios accessible and to make that work accessible? What work is being done beyond talking about DEI or DEIBC to really make sure that portfolios exist in that space? And and both of those are connected to visibility of labor. So I also think it's just really interesting to see how these principles play at, with one another and intersect with one another in really important and powerful ways. Can I add to, um, um, I, I was going to say that when we were talking about, like when I first read about the the, the visible visibility of labor, I was also just observing then this is because I work with you know a good number of schools and I see some of the interesting sort of this interesting sort of meta view of like the different journeys that people have right so Liz in your institution at LaGuardia has been a pretty amazing journey actually right so you've been doing portfolio for for almost two decades or actually overdue two decades at this point and I think we started working together maybe Mm -hmm. at the 2010 2011 something like that 
And um, you had gone through different management or administrate like high level administrators. Initially, you know, Brett Einan was the person who was running, you know, all of the, you know, at the high level sort of portfolio projects and probably getting grant funding, et cetera, for it. Put in a huge amount of work, put a lot of people into a huge amount of work, you know, the invisibility of labor. If we, we may, I'm sure there was a lot of that. And then at some point, maybe there was, you know, some kind of, um, almost, almost feels like there was enough of a structure that, you know, like, um, you were able to get certain, um, for example, the student workers, et cetera, you know, to have a team and hire people to have a team. And now that, uh, Brett had retired, I forget how many years ago now, like five sure years that, ago, yeah, something like that. Several years ago. Um, several years ago, Pablo was able to sort of take over and he seems to be doing an amazing job. But that's one of the things that actually I have seen that is, uh, really problematic too, because in many institutions, that transition may not work. And when that doesn't work, Mm -hmm. you actually, the whole thing collapse. And to me, there is a whole much more to that labor sort of transfer because, I mean, especially in an e-portfolio, we tell our students that this is going to be a new way of life for you. This is going to be, you know, the the habit of mind, of, of reflection, of learning, you're going to own your own work. This is going to follow you, et cetera, et cetera. All of the good things that comes with it. But it turns out that if one person gets promoted or gets, you know, get the new job or, or retires, all of that goes away. All of it can go away in, a, in, in just yeah. like a No, absolutely. A blink, I mean, right? LaGuardia is- And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult, like I almost feel like an empty promise if we don't, if we don't sus- substantiate that with, Oh no, it's not going to be that. Initially, yeah, a lot of initiatives is one person's hard work or maybe a few people's hard work, uh, but it's got to build itself to be self Absolutely. I mean, LaGuardia, we have a very deep and rich e-portfolio infrastructure that goes beyond you know, any one or any small group of people. And I think that infrastructure is really what has allowed us to be successful. And Pablo Avila, who's our e-portfolio director, is doing an absolutely amazing job. It's such a pleasure to work with him. Um, But for sure, he benefited from the infrastructure that was in place that allowed him to understand the structure. And I mean, he worked, um, you know, within that infrastructure and worked his way up um, through several different positions, but that really allowed him to do, to be successful because he was building on that foundation. Well, and I'll say, you know, uh, my colleague, Shelly Rodrigo, who's at the University of Arizona, both a friend and a mentor, uh, she told me long ago when I first took on the first iteration of this role I currently have, <laughs> she said, you want to be very careful that it doesn't become a that guy project, where if that guy leaves, everything goes with them. And a lot of times I tell colleagues who are starting e-portfolio initatives, uh, you probably don't realize how much of this work is relational. Uh, You are building out networks, you are building out collaborations, and that's part of why it's often an Adakai project, but that's not unique to e-portfolios. And so I think it is really important to think about how do you future-proof your initiative? How do you make sure that all of this uh, this information, and I would tell you not to be self-aggrandizing, that I think e-portfolio practitioners really are folks who have to be very multidisciplinary and constantly updating their, their, their knowledge set. 
And um, and I'm not trying to steer us towards a mapping project, but I am because we actually built that as an example of like we wanted to put some of these principles into practice and model how you might do this. And for the visibility of labor and part of it was just coming out of a very uh, self-centered way of looking at the world. I thought about how when I stepped into this job for a university of 26,000 students, they gave me an office. There was no precedent. And they said, hey, can you get us e-portfolios? By the way, we're not going to buy a platform. Bye. And I thought, how do you help graduate students who may be stepping into these roles as early career? Because I think more roles like what I have, it may not be e-portfolio specifically, but it will be digitally enriched instructional design initiatives. Uh, you know, um, we're working on extended reality right now, you know, uh, which is not something I ever thought I would have on my radar. But my point being is how could we start helping the community train future practitioners to be e-portfolio advocates or administrators uh, in the same way that writing studies had to go through that for writing center directors and writing program administrators, recognizing these are real roles with real expectations and real skill sets that students really can learn before they ever leave your your doctoral program or your master's program. And so we thought, well, let's, let's map it. Let's see what people are doing across uh, right now. It's uh, the United States and Canada. And of course, we're going to have international versions because labor is contextual, uh, you know, <laughs> within certain cultural moments. But but we want to map all the e-portfolio practitioners and advocates, so not just faculty, we're talking about admins, staff, tutors, uh, people in vice provost and provost positions who advocate for e-portfolio use to see what kinds of work, what kinds of labor, what are institutions paying for, what are they underfunding, how much time does this take, and what are the, the disciplines that we see producing these kinds of students or these kinds of, uh, of future colleagues? Uh, and then so that way we can produce reports to share with the community to say, hey, this is what we look like right now. And maybe come back to it in a few years and say, this is what we look like five years from now. And then also, you know, uh, colleagues within institutions can maybe borrow our survey and map internally who's doing e-portfolio work. Uh, Where is the bulk of that labor falling? I think Sarah's probably not wrong that we will see it falling on contingent faculty or non-tenured faculty the most, uh, and that may not be rewarded in a way that uh, is uh, ethically sound. So anyway, uh, that was that was we thought. Let's put our money where our mouth is. If we're advocating for these things, let's demonstrate some of these practices. So let's make that that labor visible and and make it actionable. So. Um, so the survey is live and live. you can take it. We'll, uh, we will be uh, sharing the link with you um, so that you don't just have to hear about this labor, mm -hmm, but you mm -hmm. can participate in it by sharing your labor with us in That's a right. not labor intensive right. uh, survey. Yeah. Help us help you because that is the hope, right? <laughs> that, that report that comes back, people should be able to take it and turn around to the university or college and say, hey, you want an e-portfolio initiative? Well, here's what other schools our size, our, our area are, are doing, and maybe even give people points of contact in a way that I think, you know, to Peter's earlier point, uh, we can feel siloed, we can feel individual. When we do these digital ethics webinars, and I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, it feels so good to know I'm not the only one, you know, so, um, so yeah, she's right, it's live, please take our survey. <laughs> And think about ways if you work in, you know, e-portfolios are a high impact practice. I hear that a That's lot. Right. And mm -hmm. I, the more I think about the survey and some of the models that we used when we were developing it, like the WACWID International Mapping Survey, um, it is, I think, 
potentially an example for people who work in a lot of these different spaces that have been named as high impact practices, um, an example of a way to start showing like, yes, the practice is high impact, but the people doing the work to make it high impact, like that's why, right? That there are people Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. It's not just doing it. It is actually the way that it's done. Um, And I'm hoping that this will maybe spur some some more work in all of those areas to show that because I think that institutions aren't seeing it or recognizing it. Because one of the things that makes it high impact impact Mm -hmm. is the mindful application of time, energy, resources, Mm -hmm. and financial support, right? That's what you can't just call. I mean, you can just say it's high impact, but if you can't show (laughs) that it's actually doing that work, then it's not a high impact practice, no matter what you call it. So that e-portfolios have been labeled a high impact practice, really that designation exists in connection with and recognition of the kind of labor that goes into making it high impact, which Mm -hmm. is not, hey, here's an e-portfolio assignment, you should go do it, right? There's so many different layers there. And so we're really hoping that the survey is going to capture all of those layers to help us talk about the work that has to go into supporting it as a high impact practice. And then taking it back to Jeff's point about sustaining those initiatives, you know, creating fair boundaries for roles, identifying how many roles maybe should be assigned to that, depending on the type of portfolio initiative you're looking at. And also, how do you preserve institutional memory when transitions occur? If somebody moves out, how, what, you know, what steps or strategies have been taken to archive and train someone onboarding? Or I've seen some pretty horrific position descriptions from colleagues over the years, which are incredibly ambiguous and open them up to being responsible back for that digital creep. Like anything that happens online, that's you, even though you're the e-portfolio person. Um, you know, and I mean, even if you look at my title, it's ePortfolio and Digital Initiatives. And I had questions about what was and digital initiatives, <laughs> you know, like let's, let's put some parameters on that. And then, you know, I'm hoping this report helps us give people who maybe feel like they can't advocate or they are risking when they advocate at least field standards to see like, this is the norm. This is what other people are doing. So I'm not out out to lunch to ask you for this price range or to ask you for this number of student workers or something like that. I think that's a, what a, it's a, it's a really fair thing to, to try to figure out. And I think that you're all, you're all, you know, so passionate about um, building that culture, but passion itself does not, you know, feed everyone's, you know, um, it does not provide the lunch that they mm-hmm. will actually need on a daily basis. And so the passion will go every once in a while. And, and, and I think that initially everyone's willing to put in a little extra effort to make something happen. And you, you are all, you know, such good examples of that, which is why you are in this digital ethics task force and doing all this extraordinary work. Anyone else want to sort of uh, wrap up? I think that I feel like that <laughs> if I had let it, we can we can talk for another couple more hours, um, but um, we we have to put an end to this. Bec- not because we want to put an end to this. We want to put an end to this today, so that we can have a follow on, you know, um, conversations maybe every that. every few months or something like that, and see where things are. 
so, but for today, any, any final thoughts? I will anyone? just say I would really invite people to take a look at the principles if you haven't, and also to understand them as a living document that are changing. So they're not set in stone. As we speak, we are rethinking, revising, um, reconceptualizing. And so we really invite people to be in conversation with us about that, with how the principles are playing out on their campuses and suggestions, ideas, changes uh, that you have. And even consider joining the task force um, to share to share with us in this labor. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Please. Yeah, we want we want it to be rich, robust, and reflect the 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 richness of the ePortfolio community. And so it can never be static. It's always gonna change. And can I add that even if you're not in the ePortfolio community, if you are especially mm-hmm. in education there has got to be a ton of parallels in whatever that you do, whether it be about access or visibility of labor or diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, decolonization. You know, these things are happening, you know, no matter where, which corner you occupy on your campus. And so um, I think that, you know, they'll probably find it useful too. All right. Well, I guess let's call this a wrap. What a great first time having four <laughs> people that I'm talking to. Um, it is a, uh, uh, what a, what a, what a, what a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, thank you so Thanks much for, for having us. Jeff. This is really today. fun. Thank you. thank you. Jeff. This was fun. Thank you guys. Take care. All right. Take care, everyone. This concludes our conversation to hear our next episode. Be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. The Digication Scholars Conversation series is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.